Well, welcome, Third Service. Um, if there's uh, anybody who's new this morning, uh, welcome. Hope you enjoy your, your visit here at Whitestone. If you, there's a gift for you at the welcome desk at the back, if you'd like to stop by, they'd love to introduce themselves and say hello to you. Uh, in the movie <coughs> Secondhand Lions, which uh, you may or may not have seen, I can recommend it to you. Uh, I'm Paul Jeffries, by the way. I'm in pinch hitting for Luke this week. In Secondhand Lions, there's, it's a movie about a 14-year-old boy called Walter who is abandoned by his uh, wayward mother at the home of his two eccentric elderly uncles, Uncle Hub and Uncle Garth, who live in the absolute middle of nowhere and who, it's rumored, have a lot of money stashed away somewhere on the premises. Uh, which they are supposedly gained during their wild and uh, uh, adventurous youth. Hub is played by actor Robert Duval, uh, and he supposedly served in the French Foreign Legion and fought in various wars, and he's a hero and so forth. Um, and so when a group of four young thugs, the movie's set in the 1950s, four young thugs mess with him in a diner when he's out having a meal with Walter, they are messing with the wrong man. And to Walter's amazement, he teaches all of them a lesson by soundly whooping all four of them without even breaking a sweat. And then having done that, he then tumbles them into their car and they follow him back to their house. And he hands out some steaks, which they slap on, black eyes and that kind of thing. And he's out by their car talking to them. And Uncle Garth and Walter are sitting on the porch in this old ramshackled old house. And Garth, um, Walter asks Garth, what Hub is talking to them about. And Garth explains that Hub is giving them his what every boy needs to know about being a man speech. And Walter is intrigued. Later on, we find him pleading with Uncle Hub to promise him to give him that speech when he's older, what every boy needs to know about being a man. And he says, you have to stay alive long enough to give me that speech. And Uncle Hub reluctantly agrees, although, of course, he has no control over how much longer he's going to live but he gives him his promise. I would wager there were men all over this country who saw this movie and wished they could have heard what Uncle Hub was saying to those young men. Why? Because we live in a culture that is void of any rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. It's not that we don't have any rites of passage, we do. We have rituals for birth and graduation and marriage and retirement and death. But what we don't have is anything that tells a boy when he becomes a man. It used to be at age 21 we were declared to be a man. When I grew up, it was age 18. Uh, in England, there was a you know, big, you know, big party, and uh, I literally got a key to the door in my birthday card. Key to the front door. All right? Because up to that point... My parents wanted to know where I was going, who I was going to be with. There was a curfew, and I had to be in. But the, the key in the, in the card meant I was now free to come and go. A line had been crossed, and I knew it. It was a simple, a simple thing. But we don't have that anymore, all right? We don't have any rite of passage. Um, we don't send our young men out into the bush to kill a lion. We don't have anything remotely resembling a Jewish bar mitzvah. And I don't know if keys to the door are even handed out anymore. So how are boys supposed to know when they've arrived, when they are now men, when they've transitioned from boyhood to manhood? Well, the answer is they don't. You know, the faintest idea. There's no clue. And uh, 
With Father's Day, just two weeks away, I'm kind of taking liberties, and I, I want to address the, uh, the men in the congregation this morning. Not just the fathers, but the men. Young, old, married, single, it doesn't really matter. And before all you ladies here say, well, I'm so glad I bothered to show up this morning. Should have stayed in bed and had an extra coffee. Uh, let me say, I'm thrilled that you're here because I think it's really important for you to um, know what a struggle this is for a lot of men. To know, have I really arrived? Am I, really, am I a man yet? All right? This is not just a young man's game. I know that um, when you ask your man what he's thinking, his normal response is nothing. <laughs> nothing. And I hate to break it to you, ladies, he isn't lying. Most, all right? It's not... He's not hiding anything from you. When you're asking him what he's thinking about and he says nothing, that's absolute God's truth, all right? Because we have the ability that women don't to think about absolutely nothing, which is why we can do things that you could be brain dead and still do them. Like, you know, you could sit and fish for hours, you know. You know? Or you're, you sit there clicking through the remote, you know, and, you're like, and your, your wife comes in and says, what are you doing? You're like, nothing. You know? Yeah, we have that ability. But having said that, there are occasionally times when something rattles around in the skull of men. And one of them is this question. When am I a man? When am I a man? We don't know. Our sincerity compounds the issue by sending incredibly confusing messages to young men. For instance, at the age of 12, we'll put a gun in the hands of a young man and let him go out and hunt with his, with his family. Mama, dad, whoever. Right, a gun. 12. At 16, we let him drive. He can have a gun at 12, but he can't drive till he's 16. And he can get married at 16 with his parents' consent. But he can't give blood until he's 17. And he can't buy a knife until he's 18. You can put a gun in his hand at 12, but he can't buy a knife until he's 18. <laughs> and at 18, he can buy cigarettes, he can vote, he can marry, he can get a tattoo. Uh, but he can't drink until he's 21. So, and then really, he can't rent a car until he's 25. Now, you could rent a car earlier than that at the age of 20, but it really isn't worth a while because they just get hammered with, um, with fees because they know that young men are reckless drivers, and so they aren't going to trust you with a rental car until you're 25. So it's just not worth your while. So there's lots of, you know, you, you, get, you see the problem, right? We tell our young men, act like a man. Well, what does that mean? You know, what do men act like, and how do I know if I am one? You know, I'm a man when I lose my virginity. I'm a man when I get my first job. I'm a man when I move into my own apartment. I'm a man when I get married. When I have my first child and I become a father. Is that when I'm a man? When does it happen? Nobody tells us. So we do the only thing that we can do in the midst of all the confusion. We construct our own idea of what a man is from a patchwork of cultural stereotypes picked up from sports and movies and jokes and some of the significant others that may be swirling around in our world. And what we come up with is pretty fuzzy. It's something along the lines of, you know, don't cry, don't show emotion really, pretty much of any kind, especially fear. Don't ask for help. Be strong, successful, grunt, spit, chew, smoke, drink, laugh at the failures of others. But there's a, there's a lot of unwritten rules. But as I say, it leaves us very fuzzy with really what it's, it's all about. 
a lot of men act this way uh, because you know there's a certain you know macho element written in you know why do we chew why do we smoke why do I vape why do I swagger well because it's, you know, this, you know, we, we've picked up somehow that that's a macho thing to do and we want to act macho because one of the things that we most want to avoid is being accused of acting like a girl all right that's but that's a false comparison, all right? Not acting like a girl doesn't make me a man. Manhood is not the opposite of womanhood, all right? Both men and women should and do mature and grow to display many similar characteristics. Now, manhood is about not acting like a child, all right? Manhood is the opposite of childhood, and childhood is when everything is done for you. So manhood means that you are beginning to take responsibility for your own life. So what I'd like to do this morning is give you my version of Hub's what it means to be a man speech. Uh, because, you see, I have three sons. I'm one of three boys, and I had three boys, so what goes around comes around. Uh, and as I grew up, I realized I needed to give them a, a clearer rite of passage. At least I got a key to the door. I knew something had changed. There isn't anything anymore. I mean... Sociologists now tell us, uh, or psychologists, whoever they are, you know, well, a boy's brain is, is not fixed. It's still developing up until they're about 27. You know, I just think that's hogwash. I mean, that's just an excuse so you can keep playing video games and be irresponsible, all right? Alexander the Great conquered the world by the time he was 27, so don't tell me you can say, well, my brain's not fully developed. That's why I'm not doing these things. No, that's no excuse at all, all right? But having had three sons, I wanted to create something for them so they knew they'd crossed a line. And uh, it was, uh, the spark for this was, I read John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, and uh, I stole his three, three, my three main points are straight from that book. I'll give him full credit for that. And a little bit of material, most of the material is kind of stuff I came up with, but some of it is from him. But I also read a newspaper article about a church in the South that was doing something along kind of a night ritual. Um, and so um, that's what sparked this idea. I need to do something for my kids so they know they've crossed this line. And I didn't want it to be a, a one and done. It's Saturday, we're celebrating, you're a man, yay, and totally forgettable for them. I wanted to have it something that had more weight, something that would carry and stay with them as we went through it. So I came up with a, a rite of passage in three stages. Stage one was when they turned 13 and entered their teen years. That seemed a good, good place to start. Stage two was when they turned 16, started driving and becoming more independent. And in, the, in our home, that's when we allowed them to date one-on-one uh, -on -one rather than in groups uh, because, uh, you know, they're now, they're growing up. And then stage three, when they turned 18, that was uh, when we decided they would no longer be considered a boy in our home, but a man responsible for their actions and decisions. And the extent of our involvement as parents, although my wife at the time struggled with this, uh, would be by, at their invitation, not by our imposition. If they wanted some input from us, then by, by all means, we'll offer it. But we're, you know, they are now making decisions for themselves. Now, I appreciate that most, if not all, of the men here are not teenagers, but that doesn't really matter, to be honest, because what I told my boys wasn't something just for their teen years. These were things that we need to know as men 
that will go on for the rest of our lives. All right? This is an, an, an ongoing, these are, these are things that are ongoing uh, that we need to be aware of, words that would carry with them. So, as well as giving them these talks at 13, 16, and 18, I wanted to give them something tangible, something that they could hold on to, something they could look at and know, all right, here, you know, that was the marker for this, that was the marker for that. And so I designed a plaque for them with three slots to hang three things in, one for each stage. And I put their names on the bottom of the plaque, and then uh, I went to a sports store and got these engraved, you know, the stick-on stick little uh, gold thingies, whatever they're called. And on the top, I wrote, Night of the Secret Fire. And I chose to, to designate them as a Night of the Secret Fire for a good reason. The word night, you see, has connotations. Um, the qualities attached to our idea of knighthood have endured, all right? Because the word knight is synonymous with words like honor, chivalry, valor, strength, loyalty, justice, you know, rich words, wonderful words. Words that I think actually still embody what a man actually looks like, a real man looks like. And I'm not alone. If you think about this, every... What is it that every single girl says they're waiting for? Well, I'm waiting for my knight in shining armor. I'm waiting for my prince to come, all right? They're using medieval terminology to describe the kind of man that they want in their life because these characteristics are linked with that kind of man, my knight, my prince, all right? So uh, that's where that comes from. Now, we have had knights for hundreds of years. This country has never had knights, all right? But girls are still using those terms for this exact reason, I believe. So I designated them knights, but then Knights of the Secret Fire, uh, that part I stole from Lord of the Rings, okay? Uh, Gandalf the Grey is on the bridge in the Mines of Moria in Khazad-dûm, all of which is complete gobbledygook for anybody who doesn't know anything about Lord of the Rings. But he is standing in this a, a demon Balrog, like a fiery lava figure. And he stands on this little bridge, and he got his staff. And he says, I am a servant of the secret fire. You shall not pass. And boom, bangs his staff down. But it was that phrase, a servant of the secret fire. And so I stole that, and I made them knights of the secret fire. Because for me, the secret fire has to do with our faith. All right? For Gandalf, it was, you know, calling on some kind of special power. Well, this is the power that God provides us, the thing hidden in our hearts that burns within us, that recognizes there is a power infinitely greater than my own that can help me become something that I'm not right now. Because I didn't want my kids to be just any kind of knight. I wanted them to be God's kind of knight, God's kind of man, not just anybody's, so to speak. So that was the secret fire. And uh, when I, my boys turned 13, I gave them the plaque and I explained why I'd called them that. And, uh, and then I gave them uh, the talk for the first stage. And I, I actually printed it out and put a little plastic sleeve on the back of the plaque so that they would have a copy of what I talked to them about and then they could stick it in the sleeve and they could refer to it anytime they liked. I was deeply moved when my middle son about a decade after, you know, he had turned 18 and graduated from college, he said, you know, Dad, every year on my birthday, I pull out those three talks and I read them through. And it was like, I did something right. I did something right. <laughs> so I felt very, very honored by that. 
So stage one, a battle to fight. That was why I titled stage one. See, boys and men like to fight. It's in our DNA, all right? It's just part and parcel of who we are. Whether we fight on the sports field or in the backyard, rough and tumble is part of our nature. And it's reflected in the kind of movies that we like. We all know there are guy flicks and chick flicks, and what makes it a guy flick is not the conversation and the muffins and the, uh, the cup of tea, all right? What makes it a guy flick is that, you know, there's a body count, somebody's dying, there's a, there's a fight going on, heads are being lost, those kinds of things, and, and so we're into that uh, because men like to fight. So I chose a symbol to represent stage one, I chose a sword, because if you're in a battle, you need a weapon. But I told them they were not in a battle against other people. In the movies, that's just fine. It's all fake. But uh, in life, the battle was for the health of their soul. All right? That's what you were fighting for. And I let them know the battle didn't start when they, the day they turned 13. It's been going on already for who knows how long. But it's going to get especially fierce through your teen years. Uh, and then on for the rest of your life. Okay? These are, these are things that you're going to be battling for forever. And what they would be battling for was three primary things. And I put this on the plaque as well. Truth, purity, and integrity. That's what you're going to be fighting for. That's what the fighting is going to be fierce through these years. The battle for truth. As boys and as men, we have to battle for the truth about who we are. Not who people say we are, because they can tell us we're all kinds of things, especially when we're young. You know, we may be told that, uh, like Einstein was, you're never going to amount to anything. Well, they were certainly wrong on that score. But you're never going to amount to anything. You're useless. You're a waste of space. You're an idiot. You're stupid. You're a loser. Or maybe we get told we're gifted, we're talented, we're handsome, we're intelligent. Just because somebody tells us that we are something doesn't make that thing true. All right? We have to decide we get to decide who we want to be in terms of the kind of person that we are. There was books produced, I don't know when it first came out in the 70s, they may still make them, you know, choose your own adventure books, you know, you read a few pages and then there's, if, if something, you have to make a decision. If you choose this, go to this page, if you choose this, go to this page. That's, that's where we're at, that's our life, we get to choose where we want to go, how we want to do. Am I going to be truthful? Am I going to cheat? Am I going to lie? Am I going to steal? Am I going to pretend? And so forth. So, you know, and, and we're not quite sure because we turn the page what's going to happen. Well, we're not sure where that's going to go with the page of our life either. But that's, we get to make those choices. If I want to become a trustworthy, honest, diligent, respectful human being, well, then I better start making choices that build those things into my life. Because I'm not just going to wake up one morning, flick a switch, and say, well, now, now I'm those things. No, no, no. I am sowing the seeds all the time of the kind of person that I'm becoming by the choices that I'm making. All right? So we have to battle for the truth about who we are and who we want to be. We also have to battle for the truth to figure out um, who God is. What's true about God? What's true about the world in which we live in, the, about human nature? and uh, about the faith that maybe we've been uh, immersed in since birth. Because I heard somebody say once, God has no grandchildren. He has no grandchildren. Because although I may bring up my kids, you know, going to church, 
immersed in faith, that, you know, until they make a choice of their own, they, uh, you know, they're not a part of God's family. I can't make that choice for them. I can only create an environment where I hope they choose and decide and, and make this choice. What's true? Is everything you've heard as a kid and grown up with, is it true? Who is God? Is he interested? Who was Jesus? Did he really die? What did he die for? What, how was it for you? What difference does it make? Does it make any difference? These are the things. You have to fight to answer those because you can't ride on the coattails of somebody else because you're either a child of God or you're not. He doesn't have grandchildren. So you have to battle for that. You have to figure out what's true um, about faith and about God. So those are the two primary things that I spoke about when it comes to battling for truth. Purity. That was, you know, this is the next battle. We live in a sex-saturated society, and uh, that society will try and convince us that sex is the ultimate animal instinct, and therefore we should just give into it at every possible opportunity, whether it's sleeping around or giving in to, uh, you know, immersing ourselves in every imaginable form of porn. It's natural. Everyone knows this. There's no need to deny ourselves. There are no consequences. Just do it, which is a lie from the pit of hell, because to say there are no consequences to this uh, is to put complete blinders on and to stick fingers in your ears and go la, 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 and pretend nothing's happening, because that's the, how much of a lie that is. Illicit sex and porn can and does have devastating consequences on millions of lives, millions of men every day, as they live with shame and guilt and feel used and abused. And unlike all of our other bodily appetites, the consequences don't go away. Yeah, I can overeat and I can put on weight, but if I experience something, you know, that sticks with me in a way. How many meals do you remember? Maybe a few special occasions. How many meals have you eaten? The experiences that we have, they stick with us. They linger with us. And uh, prolonged exposure to sexual images, to sexual activity, can have uh, enormous consequences for us as men in terms of having, being able to have a normal physical relationship with a woman. This is a battle that never goes away, all right? The sex drive, and men, I don't think men think about sex every seven seconds, as the legend has it, but I think they think about it a whole lot more than most women do. And there was always exceptions, but I remember I saw a, a marriage, I was at a conference one time, Mark Gungor was his name, and he talked about the sex drive in men, and he held up, he had one of these uh, big flip charts, and you know, giant piece, he said, this is a man's sex drive, it does diminish with time, let me show you. And he took a pen and he drew a line and it went down ever so gradually across the page and then you're dead. All right? And so, <laughs> so, so this is not something that goes away for us as men. You're going to have to battle against this and it's, it's more and more available to us. I watched a YouTube um, a video about somebody talking about the new, you know, chat GPT. They're now going to be creating images that are lifelike, that will do these things. And it's like, you know, where is it going to end? It's like, yeah, it, this is something we have to fight against, purity. Fight against uh, to stay pure 
for our lives. And then lastly, we have to fight for integrity. I let them, my boys, know that assaults on their integrity are already constant as those around them try and tempt them to compromise their values and what they know to be right and wrong or true and false. And that's not going to go away either. It's going to be fierce, a lot of peer pressure through your teen years, but it's going to carry on, all right? And uh, it doesn't just apply to copying homework or fessing up to some misbehavior at school. The temptations will continue. Are you going to lie on your resume? You're going to cheat on your taxes. Are you going to steal from the company that you work for, claiming expenses that you never incurred? Are you just going to take supplies from your office? There's all kinds of opportunities going to be available to, available to you for the rest of your life to compromise your integrity. But if you get busted, and this was the thing that they needed to know, once you lose your integrity, it's almost impossible to rebuild it within that community. You're going to have to move. Because you can start fresh where people don't know you. Because if you have undermined trust, how do you regain that? You know? They put trust in you and you blew it. Why would they trust you again? Very, very difficult to regain integrity once it's gone. So those are the things I told them that they should be fighting for. Truth, purity, and integrity. But I also pointed out that they could choose not to fight for those things. All right? You're still going to grow up, I told them but I think you're gonna be missing some of the essential qualities that I think uh, men need in the society in which we live. So that was stage one. Stage two, when they turned 16, I titled A Beauty to Rescue. It a battle to fight, this is the beauty to rescue. Proverbs 30, 18 and 19 says this. It says, there are three things that are too amazing for me. Four, four, that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. I love that this is in Scripture because what it points out is that we are so phenomenally different. Our relationships are a mystery. You know, this whole chemistry thing, total mystery. You ever seen those books in the stores where it says, you know, everything that women wish their man knew, and you open up and they're completely blank because you have no idea what's going on, all right? Um, I heard somebody say once, there's only two ways to handle a woman, and nobody knows either of them, all right? So, because, and even Solomon is like, this is a mystery, this whole relationship thing is a mystery. I just thought that was great that it's in there. Um, we are phenomenally different. We think differently, we process information differently, we respond to the world around us differently which makes relationships not just a mystery, but something that to be navigated carefully because this is the life of another human being that we're talking about here, all right? We're not dealing with a lawnmower that we could beat with a stick if it didn't start. This is somebody's life. And uh, this, the, the symbol I chose for stage two was a glass rose. Two reasons. First, because uh, our relationship with the fairer sex is, is beautiful, like a flower. This beauty is intrinsic. It's not the color or the size of the flower. It's just there's a beauty to a flower, and there's a beauty to a woman that is intrinsic to who they are. But relationships with those women, why it was glass is because they are very fragile. Not the women are fragile. It's the relationship that's fragile. And I have the potential, I told the kids, you have the potential to take what's something of a relationship, and you can just smash that thing right on the ground and 
shatter it into a million pieces, and you can't put those pieces back together again. Kind of like the integrity piece, you know. You can't undo that. And somebody now goes off hurt and wounded. We need to handle with care. I mentioned earlier that there are guy flicks and chick flicks, but there is something that guy flicks and chick flicks have in common. There is a part, or there comes a part in a lot of the guy flicks, when normally kind of towards the end, the heat of the battle and the climax, the hero says something along the lines of, carry on without me, boys. There's something I got to do. What has he got to do? He's got to go get the woman. He's got to rescue the girl. All right? And that's something which I think both genres have in common. He has to go back for the girl. All right? That's the common denominator. Well, what does that mean for people like you and me who are not in the movies to go back for the girl? Well, I think John Eldridge puts his finger on it when he says this. He says, the deep cry of every little girl's heart is, am I lovely and will you fight for me? Am I lovely and will you fight for me? And unfortunately, most girls from a very early age hear the devastating message, no, you are not lovely and you're nowhere near lovely enough compared to all the airbrushed models and photoshopped girls on the magazines in the grocery stores. So no, you are not lovely and no one will ever fight for you. That's the message that is sent to them. And you know what? The majority of them believe it. And that message gets reinforced in their heart every time the girl gets used and dumped. See, you're not lovely. Nobody's going to fight for you. Every time the girl sees her man flirting with some other woman, every time her man doesn't defend her, it's like that knife just gets driven deeper and deeper into her heart. And I am not lovely, and nobody is ever going to fight for me. The end result is that she goes through life believing a lie, that she's not lovely and nobody will fight for her. Stage two I titled A Beauty to Rescue, not because girls are helpless and need us men to come along and do everything for them. You know, that's, the rescue is not that kind of rescue, right? It's not hack your way through the thicket, you know, slay the dragon, climb the tower. Oh, you came for me. There, that, that, that would be easy compared to what actually God is asking us to do as men. That, girls don't need rescuing in that way. No, it's about rescuing them from the lie that they are not lovely and nobody will ever fight for them because that is our God-given role as men. And I told this to my boys when, as teenagers because, you know, if, whether you're dating or whether you're married, if you don't start thinking that way when you're dating, you aren't going to be bringing that into your marriage because dating is a prelude to marriage. So it's, it begins when the relationship forms, not later when you think, well, I mean, it's never too late to start, but if you can catch it early, this is what it means for us. That's the calling that we have. Will you fight for me? That doesn't mean putting fists up necessarily. I mean, it could, but it's unlikely. It's more likely to be what the knights were. Well, who were the knights? They were protectors. They were defenders of the realm, all right? And and that's the role that we have to play. Should God grace us with a woman, um, with a girlfriend or with a wife, protecting them, defending them. And that could be from something insignificant or seemingly so. Maybe we're in a restaurant and the waiter or waitress is snippy 
with, uh, with our, uh, our wife. We say, excuse me, you don't get to speak to my wife that way. You know, that's a small thing, but you're defending, you're protecting. Maybe, maybe your wife is coming home and she's just all stressed out every day, in tears, panic attacks, just crushed. She loves what she's doing, but maybe it's the people she's working with, or an overbearing boss, or too much of a workload because somebody left and they just smushed two jobs together. And rather than just saying, well, suck it up, honey, we need the money, you come in and you say, honey, we need to do something about this because I don't, this isn't a life for you. You're not living here. It's, it's killing you. I want to protect you from this. So let's figure out a way forward. And if that means leaving, let's start looking for new, new jobs. Protecting them, defending them. It's also going to mean at times where you come home and the lie is kicked up big time. And you're going to find your wife saying something along the lines of, I'm so fat, I'm so ugly. I'm such a terrible mother. I'm such a terrible wife. And you're going to have to say, no, 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 no. You are lovely. And I will fight for you. I will fight for us. Don't think those things. It's not true. That is the high calling that's placed on us by God. That's the challenge that we have. You see, there's really only one command to husbands in, in Scripture. It simply says, husbands, Love your wives. Now, what does that mean? Because we use the word love. You can put it in any sentence and it fits. I love pizza. I love ice cream. I love my dog. I love my wife. You know, you put it all on that same playing field. We have no idea what it means. Fortunately, the scripture doesn't leave us hanging because it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And here's the key. And gave himself for her. There was a pouring out of life one for the other, a spilling of life, a spending of life, one for the other, which is completely countercultural, because we live in a society where men like to take from women, do this for me, I've got this good-looking girl on my arm, she's making me look good, and it's all about me, and that's the opposite, and sometimes we take, men take by force when they don't get what they want, exact opposite of what God anticipates husbands do. Love your wives, spill your life in defense and protection for this woman. Protect her from the lie that she has grown, in, grown up with. That's our challenge. Self-sacrificing, not self-serving. Till death do us part. That was stage two, beauty to rescue. Stage three was when they turned 18. And I titled this an adventure to live. And the symbol I gave them was a runner's medal because, uh, you know, uh, God wants us to run with him for the rest of our lives. And I said earlier that, that nobody tells us when manhood starts. But in reality, you know, it's a process. It's not like a one-time deal. It's a process. But every process has a beginning. And so at 18, that was when I told uh, my boys that uh, this is when the process for you begins. No, you can't legally drink yet, but that is hardly the marker for manhood. There are plenty of other things that you can do. So even though um, the, they're just one day older than they were yesterday, right? we're declaring them to be a man. And it's the declaration that's the important piece. Because I had to, to clarify with the boys, you know, you probably don't feel like a man. You probably don't feel 
any different than you did yesterday. But that's okay. I'm declaring you to be a man today. Now you have to then become what you are declared to be. Think of it this way. You know, there's graduates. This coming weekend, there's going to be people graduating. Some, a lot of the colleges have already done this. They've walked across platforms, and they've shaken hands, and been given pieces of paper, and they are declared to be mechanics, nurses, you know, doctors, uh, you name it, or kind of any, any profession you like. But now that they've gotten their degree, and maybe they've had some experience, they've been an intern or whatever, but they have to now spend the rest of their life becoming the thing that they are declared to be. Because their knowledge and experience is this big, and as the years go by, it's just going to get bigger and bigger. Whatever that field is, all right? Well, that applies to becoming a man. We were declaring you to be a man today. Now you have to spend the rest of your life becoming the man that we're declaring you to be. I titled Stage 3, An Adventure to Live. Here's the dictionary definition of adventure. It's to engage in a hazardous and exciting activity, usually involving danger, exploration, and unknown risks. Well, if that doesn't explain or doesn't you know, tell us what life is, I don't know what does. An exploration, a hazardous, exciting journey involving danger and unknown risk. That pretty much sums it up for me. All right? I think John Eldridge again taps into this when he says, you know, uh, why, is, why are sports so many guys' biggest, you know, why are we so addicted to sports? Because it's the biggest adventure they have. And once they get past high school, the vast majority of them just then live vicariously through the activities and adventure of other people, whether that is in movies or sports teams. You know, they're all, we're all armchair experts. If that had been me, here's what I would have done under those circumstances. All right. And so what we're really doing is we're not outliving our adventure. We're just passively watching something else. Somebody else lived the adventure, and I'm just sitting home here hiding behind the TV screen, hiding behind the computer, hiding behind the gym. Hiding behind my work, hiding behind what well, can be anything, you know. I'm out hunting. I'm hiding behind my beer. And so we construct this facade of I'm the man, you know, living this adventure. No, we're not. We're just, you know, when we meet somebody, we meet this wonderful facade. But underneath, they're not living their life. They're experiencing other people's adventures, touching on them without it being their own. And that is not how God has equipped us to live. Jesus has a lot to say about life. And I told my boys this. I said, you know, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've come that you might have life, life in all its fullness. I, he who has the Son has life. So life is what God is interested in. And he's, he wants to pour it out. Right? He's not interested in sucking the life out of us. A lot of times men think, oh, I don't want that whole religion thing. You know, it just confines you, constricts you. And I'm like, what book have you been reading? All right? if, you, if you think that in the, the Bible, you're not reading the Bible because it's chock full of nail-biting adventures that, that, that a lot of men have. And uh, this is what God calls us to, to live and live well. And we don't, I, I have to clarify this with my boys, uh, I said, it's not that you go out and, and try and find adventure. You don't have to jump out of airplanes without a parachute or, you know, do weird and wonderful things to get your pulse rate up. 
earth, get an adrenaline rush. It's not about trying to create an adventure. Your life is the adventure. And like all adventures that you've ever read about or seen, there's lots of ho-hum, kind of not a whole lot happening now. And now, and now it's terrifying, and I'm hanging on by my nails, and I don't know if we can make it through. And now it's relaxing. That's what adventures are like. You can't live here, all right? Be glad you don't, because it's terrifying. But your, the choices you make, uh, they are creating the adventure that you live. And we have no idea, because we're not just blown around by circumstances and chance. Yeah, stuff happens to us. You know, we get curveballs thrown our way. But we don't know where some of the decisions we make will take us, what path it will lead us along. But the adventure is following that path and having the courage to take God by the hand and face the wind and say, God, I want to live with you. I don't want to just vicariously you know, look at other people living and get to the end of my days and discover I never really did. So whatever that means for me as a homemaker, as, uh, you know, as somebody who was employed in this line of work, I wanted to live it to the full. I want to experience the life that you say you came to give me, give me, not just through others. I want to live it with you. The symbol I chose for stage three was a runner's medal because that's God's invitation, to run with him for the rest of our life. Run with perseverance, the word says, the race set before you. And he's not looking for a five-minute stroll or an afternoon jog. This is a lifelong marathon where we run with him with perseverance through the boredom, through the terror, but with him living along the way. So men, it's my prayer that we will all become what we are declared to be, that we become knights, men of honor who fight for truth, and purity and integrity. Men who go back for the girl, who spill their lives seeking to communicate that they are lovely and we will fight for them. And I pray that as men we will refuse to hide, refuse to be spectators in our own story, uh, that instead we embrace this wild adventure that God invites us into and that we walk or run or however he wants us to live with him through it so we can discover the remarkable difference that his presence can make on the journey. And whether our own father set a great example or not, whether he uh, let us down or whether he was entirely absent, you know, which is tragic. Again, it's, it's a, one of the curses of our society. It's a plague in our society. But as a follower of God, we have the greatest father who has ever existed. God himself will be our father. He says he will train us up in the way we should go, which is what parents are told to do with their kids. That's what God will do with us if we allow him to do so, if we invite him to do so. So let's recommit ourselves to allowing him to do just that, so that he can make each of us as men a knight of the secret fire, alive in him and living for him. Let's pray together. Father, we can't turn the clock back. 
we can't make our kids young again and instill in them some of the things that maybe we'd like to have done. But we can seek to become the kind of men that you want us to be. And it's never too late to start. You can restore the years that the locust has eaten. You can renew our strength. You can renew our minds. You can help us live our adventure and step out on the, the road that's been less traveled. We can stop hiding. And we can begin becoming knights, protecting, defending, answering those two questions deep in the hearts of the woman, if you've given us one, that we run through life with. God, these are important issues. Help us to mirror your fatherhood, not just to our own family, but to anybody that crosses our path. Everyone that came within Jesus' sphere was treated as a brother and a sister and a father and a mother. And God, you can call us to do the same. May we rise to the challenge and may we be thrilled and excited to see what you do as we do so. Hear us, we pray, as we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two things. First of all, uh, Steve and Diane are going to be over here. Oh, Suzanne's going to be over here. Uh, For anyone that would like prayer, for anything at all, um, please feel free to come up and Suzanne will pray with you. And secondly, um, I put today's talk into a little booklet, and it's this kind of expanded, you've got the abbreviated version, with some of the rationale behind why I even did it in the first place. So if you'd like one of these, the church has very uh, graciously offered to fund 30 of them, and there's sign-up sheets out in the foyer there. And in the back, should you decide to take this further, if you've got kids, there's about how you can make your own plaque and own things, things that are available. But it doesn't have to be, this was just me. You could come up with anything you like. That's Make it your own. My oldest son has three girls. He can't do this with three girls. So he has to figure out what is the rite of passage for three girls. How are they going to know? They've entered womanhood. And so he's still mulling that over. His oldest is seven. So it's coming. Um, because there are things that I think there are some markers that girls would be helped to know. I am now, I've stepped across this line and I'm a woman. Just as men need to know. I've stepped across the line, and I'm a man. So those are out in the foyer for you to, uh, to sign up if you'd like one. Other than that, it's a beautiful day. Go and have a wonderful time, and uh, see you again next week.